All right, let's um, let's pray. Father, um, we just resonate with the Apostle Paul when he stops for a moment to consider the work of the triune God to rescue enemies, to make them priests and kings. That we, we would say with him, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in, in him. Thank you for choosing us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before you. That in love you predestined us to adoption through your son. We just thank you for these things, Lord. We are, um, we are not earners here. We are recipients of divine grace. And so we thank you. Uh, and we say, blessed be your name. Lord, um, yeah, reminded of Psalm 127, uh, lest the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord preaches the sermon, the preacher preaches in vain. Uh, would, you, would you preach the sermon today? Would you take up your word and make it count for all of us um, as, uh, as we endeavor to, um, yeah, to give ourselves, to commend ourselves to you and to the word of your grace, which is able to build us up and give us an inheritance? Um, would, you, would you do that for us today um, through, the, through the power of your spirit and through the strength of your word? Um, would you bless my brothers and sisters? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. And um, you guys remember, I hope, uh, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but uh, do y'all remember, remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? Yes. Maybe the best war movie in the history of the world because it made you nauseous the whole movie, right? Um, there's... Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, premises, you've got one guy, Private Ryan, who had uh, four brothers, all of which were in, on the European theater in World War II. Four of them died. So all uh, there's five brothers, and uh, parents get letters for one, two, three, four of their children, and there's only one left. So they go on this uh, desperate mission way behind enemy lines to rescue Private Ryan so one family is not bereaved of their entire lineage and sacrifice to the country. And so this group of guys that you come to love as they go to serve this guy and rescue him, you come to like love these guys. They're all they're all great. And when they find um, Matt Damon, it's Matt Damon, uh, right? Isn't it? Yes. Okay, thank you. When they find him, Gracie looked at me like I was wrong. Oh, maybe I was wrong. Okay. When they find Private Ryan, they say, hey, we got to get you out of here. And he says, no, this is my post. I'm not leaving I'm not leaving my brothers in arms. Like, I don't, I don't get to just go off to safety. I'm staying here. And so this whole group of rescuers has to stay there and fight for this saving, for Ryan, right? For Private Ryan. Plus they already lost someone. Plus they already lost you. One or two guys before they got there. Yes, yeah. So they lose a couple guys on the way, and they're, they're ready to grab Ryan and go home. They can't do it because he, like a good dude, wants to keep, stay at his post. And, and so... They all end up going through this battle. Several of them die in the battle, and their their chief, their leader, um, the greatest actor of all time besides myself, is uh, Tom Hanks, and um, he dies. He gets shot um, by somebody that they rescued earlier and gave mercy to. By the way, it's very interesting. But the very end of that movie, 
He's dying. And Private Ryan finds him, and he's leaned against some truck or something, and he's sitting up, and he knows he's dying. Do you remember what he says to Private Ryan? After all of these men lay down their lives to, to save him, do you remember what he says? The most devastating words in the English language. He says, and I quote, earn it, earn it. And then he dies. Earn it, earn. Ten guys dying for you. Earn it. And then the movie ends with him standing by these guys' graves, right? Weeping. And his, he's surrounded by his family. And he's like, tell me. And do you remember what he asked his bride as he's like weeping over these guys who died for him? And he spent his whole life trying to, trying to make that a good idea. Trying to earn that grace, earn that gift. He falls on his face and he's weeping and, uh, and his wife says, what's wrong? What's wrong? And, and he looks up at her and he says, do you remember it? Tell me I'm a good man. Guys, that's devastating. Here's a, here's a guy who was given grace, but then at the very last breath of the one who gave it, he says, now go earn it. Like so many people do with the gospel of Jesus who died to rescue you, and then it's like his last word is, now go forth and earn it. Well, good luck. You can't do it. And so you, like that guy, will um, spend every waking day and every waking hour desperate to be told you're a good man. Well, guess what? Jesus doesn't tell you to earn it. He says receive it. Now, the reason I bring that story up is because um, it's those famous last words that dictated to this man, Ryan, the rest of his life. Earn it. We have some famous last words of Paul to the Ephesian elders. These are not Paul's last words in the history of mankind, but they are his last words to the, uh, to the people of Ephesus, to the elders at Ephesus. Um, and he tells them these words as he, and part of them is, you, I know that you will never see my face again. So these are really heavy, heavy words, and I want us to... Uh, to observe through the things that he, uh, that he says. Man, can we just stop and marvel at our Lord? That, that it would be fitting for him to have given his life for us and then say, now go earn it and ruin us all. Isn't it great that he doesn't say that? He doesn't say go earn it. What a, what a savior. Okay, so I've got a bunch of words that are going to guide us through, the, um, through this talk that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders. The first, if you want to write it down beside verse 18 and 19, write the word courage. Write the word courage. Now, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, now, just really quick, the previous verse tells us that Paul is, uh, to borrow a phrase from a brother, beating feet. Um, I'd never heard that till Yancey told me that one time. Beaten feet. He's trying to get to Jerusalem quick. He wants to be there for, the, uh, for if possible, on the day of Pentecost, he tells us, and uh, Luke tells us in verse 16. So he's trying to get there fast. And so <clears throat> what he doesn't do, it's kind of heartbreaking, but he doesn't go to the church, the whole church that he has spent the most amount of time with there in Ephesus. He just calls the elders to him. He's like, I can't. You, you know that, right? There are some times when you're going to, when you're going to, when you're trying to go someplace fast, you can't just start any old conversation because some guys like to like to talk, and they're gonna, uh, you know, they're gonna hold you there. And so he's he's got to go fast. So he calls the Ephesian elders to him, 
And he starts off by saying, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, okay? Testifying to both Jews and Greeks. Now, <clears throat> the, the overarching idea that comes when I read these words of Paul is his courage. There's several things I want to point out to you about this. The first is in verse 19 when he says, I served the Lord with all humility. <clears throat> Does that strike you as odd? That somebody can self-attest to be humble, right? Guys, you want to learn humility? Just come follow me. I'm super humble, right? It's, it seems weird. It seems weird that that's the first thing that Paul says about himself. You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, that I serve the Lord with all humility. There is another great man in the scripture who self-attests to his own humility, and it's Moses. Moses says of himself that Moses was the most humble man in Israel. Isn't that bizarre? We tend to think of humility as like being down on ourselves. Like if you're just like sad and the only thing you say about yourself is trash talking, uh, that that's what humility is. I think humility is just radical Christ-centeredness. Somebody who is not, does not always have eyes on themselves and their own gifts and their own uh, struggles and all of those things where like everything is about me. It's all about Christ and it's all about Christ's people. And so Paul can really say that I serve the Lord with all humility. It's an amazing statement. Um, I serve the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials. Paul, why were you crying and why were you suffering? Well, the tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now think about this for a moment. Think about if you were doing ministry in a place where people were scheming against you. Not just like, um, it would be one thing to, to like take a ministry post and they say, you know, uh, it, it's likelihood, you're, you're, it's, the likelihood is high. You're going to meet with some, some opposition and some struggle. Like there's going to be some hard times. Well, everybody knows that. But to be actively schemed against, that there are people out there trying to catch you in your words trying to excite mobs against you, trying to catch you, that would be absolute misery to me. To, to think that there are people, of course we're, gonna, we're not always going to see eye to eye with everybody that we, with whom we share life, but man, to, to be surrounded by plots, by people planning to do you evil, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And he says... That despite the tears, despite the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. Um, so the idea is that uh, Paul is going to repeat this word twice, this idea of shrink. If you write in your Bibles, circle that word. It's a, it's a mega theme here in this, in this idea that Paul is saying, look, the temptation when the Jews were coming after me, the temptation was to shrink back, to withdraw from some of the more controversial things that I had to preach. This is the, uh, this is the same word that is used of Peter in Galatians 2.12. When Peter has, uh, they're all in, um, I guess they're in Galatia. Are they in? I'm, I'm not sure where they are in this, in this story because uh, I don't read my Bible. But Peter is there. 
And he's been eating with the Gentiles uh, as though he were not a Jew. He's disregarding the law, which he was free to do. And so he's eating with Gentiles. Now all of a sudden, the circumcision party comes up. A bunch of Jews come from Jerusalem. Uh, and as soon as Peter sees them, he knows if they see me eating this, they're going to persecute me. They're going to be all over me. And so he shrinks back. He withdraws from that. And Paul says, I withstood him publicly because he was not walking in step with the gospel. That Peter, in, in light of the plots of the Jews, in light of the persecution uh, of, of his own countrymen, Peter shrunk back and Paul says, I didn't do that. I stood my ground regardless of whatever type of controversy there was. And I want to uh, tell you something too just about this idea of, um, he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Anything that was profitable. Um, we're going to see this in a second as well. But the idea there is that um, one, of the, one of the verses that we loved to teach in, uh, or heard quoted in Bible college all the time is uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scripture is God-breathed. And for whatever reason, it was like people wanted to put a period there. All scripture is God-breathed, period. That's not how the sentence ends. Can you give me the next thing that all scripture is? All scripture is God-breathed and profitable good for you so paul says look there are certain things see if this is true in our day are there certain things that you can stand in any context anywhere i could open the bible and say look thus saith the lord and i would get no um no backlash of course god is love i can preach that sermon all the time and everybody will applaud but there are some things in the word of god that are equally as profitable that will get you run out of town on a rail and Paul says, those are the things that I leaned into. I didn't shrink back because it was profitable for you. Listen, we need to court the type of hearts that would desire to hear everything that is profitable from the word of God. And we also need to court the type of men who would have this kind of courage to stand and deliver that which is profitable um, regardless of the, of the outcome of it. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat across from fellow pastors who have said about any given topic, I know that's what the Bible says, but my people will never go for it. Feel free to weep. Feel free to weep. Those are real guys standing in real pulpits, really shrinking back from declaring that which is profitable. Um, I had a, a guy in my office one time who actually said these words. Think about this. I know what the I know that, uh, he says. I know what the Bible says, but where are you going with that sentence? Like, how are you going to end that well? You, it cannot be. I know what the Word of God says, but nothing. But speak it, hear it, obey it, believe it, preach it. But nothing. You don't get to tamper with what God's Word says. And so Paul says, look, this, this has been my life. This has characterized my life since the day that I stepped foot in Asia. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you everything that was profitable. That is fantastic. Uh, the second thing I want you to uh, write beside verse 21, clarity. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the, the pinnacle, the sum total of every ounce of instruction that is given according to the word of God that we would be preaching repentance towards God and a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we talked about this at length um, last, uh, last Sunday, the, idea, the difference between repentance and faith and what, um, how we're to understand these things. Um, repentance, again, is a turning from and a turning to. It's turning from ourselves, our own sufficiency. It's acknowledging our guilt before a holy God. And then faith is actively trusting in the finished work of Jesus. And this is the sum total of Paul's ministry. Yes, he talked about other things, but this is the centerpiece. So even though this guy, think about, think about all of the peripheral things that the Apostle Paul addressed. Did he ever say anything about marriage? Of course he did. Did he ever say anything about politics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did he ever say anything about economics, about uh, work ethic? Did he ever say anything about uh, theology or philosophy? Like this man spoke about everything. And yet he tells the Corinthians, I purpose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything that, that the Apostle Paul taught was aimed at helping people to see the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ. Whether it was marriage, politics, philosophy, everything was aimed at repentance, getting people to repent, to let go of trusting themselves, their default. Um, the default religion of the human heart is to, is to trust myself and to go work, to repent from that and to trust in Jesus. I want to read you a quote that I think brings repentance and faith together as well as any quote that I've ever read. Um, listen to... Listen to this, our brother. I beseech you to be persuaded that here you are to work nothing. Here you are to do nothing. Here you are to, are to render nothing unto God. Do you know, did you hear the three negatories? Nothing, nothing, nothing. You are to work nothing, do nothing, render nothing unto God. That's repentance. The default of the human heart is... I. It, this is why atheists don't, atheists don't want to acknowledge God. The second you acknowledge that God exists, you know you are beholden unto him. And so the default, if you say, I know that God exists, the very next thing is I, I've got, I owe him everything. I've got to serve. I've got to work. I've got to do. And you need repentance to understand that the only thing that can bridge the gap between your sinful rebellion and the holiness of God cannot come from you. It can't do it. We always think it comes from us. It must come from me. If, I, if I'm doing good, I'll be received. If I'm not doing good, I'll be rejected. And so this man comes with a, with, a, with a hand on the holiness of God and a hand on the sinfulness of man. And he says, if you would be reconciled to God, you are to work nothing, do nothing, and render nothing unto God. That's repentance. Here's faith. But only, only receive the treasure which is Jesus Christ. And apprehend him into your heart, by in your heart by faith, although you be ever so great a sinner. And so you shall obtain forgiveness. How do you obtain forgiveness? You bring nothing, you work nothing, you give nothing, you receive the treasure that is Jesus Christ, and by by so doing you obtain the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, eternal happiness, 
not as an agent, but as a patient. Can you sit in that? Not something you do, that you, that, that you achieved it, that you're the agent of it. You are the patient. Not by doing, but by receiving. Nothing here comes betwixt, but faith only apprehending Christ as the promise. This then is the perfect righteousness, to hear nothing, to know nothing, and to do nothing of the law of works, but only to know and believe Jesus Christ has gone to the Father and sits at His right hand, not as judge, but is made unto you of God wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In short, He is everything that you need. As Paul said to the jailer, so I say to you, believe in the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. That is, be verily persuaded in your heart that Jesus Christ is yours and that you shall have life and salvation by him. That whatsoever Christ did for the redemption of mankind, he did it for you. That's what it means to exercise faith in Christ. I need to read that last sentence to you because it's something that I think Christians struggle with. I struggle with this every single day of my life. It is not enough for you to believe that Jesus died for the redemption of mankind. That is not enough for you. You have to wear the other shoe. That whatever, whatsoever Christ did for the redemption of all mankind, He did it for you. For you. That's what faith is. is the assurance that what Jesus did, He intended for me. For me. And for you. That's what it means to exercise faith. Repentance and faith, says the, the, uh, the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked came, come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The clarity of the preaching of the Apostle Paul, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, right out beside the next uh, verse 22, write the word constrained, constrained. And now behold, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the whole the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He is constrained by the Holy Spirit. Um, now, I want to say a word about suffering here, um, which, by the way, when you talk about men who could stand and and reasonably, I wouldn't call it a boast, but I would call it a description that Paul would say, I didn't shrink from declaring anything to you that's profitable. Um, can you imagine Joel Osteen preaching a series on, on suffering in the Christian life? No, you cannot. Why? Because he doesn't want to preach those parts. That part, those parts don't sell. Nevertheless, um, it is part and parcel of the Christian life. And so I want to look at this idea of what we are to do with suffering. Um, first off, let me say, it is not your job to seek after suffering. Did you know that? I, I remember my grandfather when I was, uh, my grandfather was a great, great brother. He was awesome. He was, um, 
one of the great heroes that, uh, that I've ever had. He said one time, he was reading um, uh, in Hebrews, that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And he said, he, he said, Lord, you've never dis- disciplined me. I've been, I've led a semi-charmed life. Like, I need you to, I need you to help me suffer so that I can know I'm yours. Um, I didn't know, you know, my ear from a hole in the ground. Or I would have said, Pa, don't, you don't need to think like that. You don't need to pray like that. Suffering is not something you have to go seek. Okay, so, um, so if you if you look at your life and say, yeah, there have been some some ups and downs, but like on the whole, uh, there's some there's a lot of peace and a lot of blessing, and, and suffering has not necessarily characterized my Christian life. Uh, I don't think you need to uh, to repent over anything necessarily, or or go out and go seeking suffering. But listen to me, suffering is not something that you avoid either. You don't go try and find it. But you don't try and run from it. Um, I love this text that, what, that what's central to Paul is obedience and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows suffering is going to come. He's not going there so that he can suffer. He's going there so that he can be faithful. But the fact that suffering is going to come does not make him bail on, on the pursuit of faithfulness. So suffering, you don't seek it. You don't avoid it. You endure it. And then you consider it um, the way God tells you to consider it, that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond compare, that God intends in your suffering as you seek faithfulness to Christ and suffering comes, he intends a weight of glory to be added to you because of it. Paul is constrained and the, and the fact that he's going to suffer is not going to cause him to bail. Um, now, I want... I, uh, beside, if you've, if you've got a Bible like mine, you're going to have to turn the page before you can write this down. But the next word, however you want to, wherever you want to put it, is conscience. Conscience. Luke in verse 25. And now behold, Paul says, I know that none, um, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Now think about that. C.S. Lewis talked about leaving a school that he hated for the very last time. And he said there was something about the comfy chair in the library that broke his heart. Because he knew, I'll never see it again. There's something about like, I've got this familiar thing, whatever it is. It may be really important, it may be not so important, but it's, it's mine and it's familiar, and now I know I'm never going to see it again. And there's something heart-rending about that. He's talking to brothers, to brothers in Christ, whom he loves deeply. And he says, I know none of you will see my face again. And he, I love this, he immediately goes to confess that, that he has a clean conscience before them. Look in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For, how can you say that, Paul? How can you say you're innocent of the blood of all? For, I did not shrink. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So not just what you wanted to hear, but I told you everything, the whole counsel of God, whether you wanted it or not. Um, I was trying to think about whether or not I could say this. Like, could I look you in the face and say, I am innocent of the blood of you all because I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Um, not that I have to, you know, uh, 
whatever, read myself into the, into the text. But by God's grace, I can say um, there are some things I, I want yet to teach you. Um, but I can say that there's never been a time, there have been a lot of times where I know that what I'm going to say is probably going to ruffle feathers. Um, matter of fact, there's one coming up that I'm about to say that's going to ruffle some feathers. But I can say, knowing that, that I've never willfully or, or intentionally tried to mitigate the truth or tried to, uh, tried to, make, it, uh, to make it easier on you. Um, and it's not because I don't love you. Matter of fact, it's because I do love you. Uh, it's, it's my job to tell you what the Word of God says. That's, that's my job. And, um, yeah, it's amazing to me that Paul can say that he has proclaimed to them the whole counsel of God. Um, that's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. He's got a clear conscience. Uh, we're, we've been reading through Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, uh, the Lord says to Ezekiel, I have set watchmen on the walls for Israel. And he says, look, if, if the watchman on the, on the city walls sees the enemy coming and says nothing and people die, I'll hold the watchman accountable. You will be responsible for their blood. Conversely, if the watchman cries out and says, enemies at the gate, enemies at the gate, and nobody listens, they will die and their blood will be on their own hands, but you'll be innocent of it. And so the idea is you tell them what you see. You tell them what I tell you to tell them, and you will be innocent. But if you do not, you will be held accountable. You will be held accountable for such things. And so he has a, uh, he has a clear conscience. Um, one of the amazing things about preaching um, that is, uh, is often misunderstood is that it's not my job to change you. That's hard. That's hard for me. Um, but it's not my job, and it's not my job because I can't do it, Right? This is one of my favorite jokes, right? When any, any uh, visitor is among us and somebody says, hey man, make sure, make sure to give them the goods today because I mean, you're, it's down to you. Like you got to save them. Uh, preaching, again in Ezekiel, preaching is the picture of Ezekiel being brought to the valley of dry bones and he looks out on just bones and God asks him the stupidest question ever. Do you know what it is? Can these bones rise again, Ezekiel? And Ezekiel gives the best answer in the history of mankind. You know, I do not. You know, O Lord. God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. Do you know the first word out of Ezekiel's mouth when he, when he prophesies to the bones, when he starts preaching at dead and lifeless, dry bones? He says, hear the word of the Lord, you bones. There's hammer, stirrup, and anvil bones, but there's no there's no eardrum there's no cochlear cochlea, there's no ear there, there's no flesh that they could possibly hear, but he commands them, you hear the word of the Lord, and the bones start to rattle and they start to come together, that's where we get our knee bones connected that song comes from Ezekiel, no joke now he looks out on these, uh, on these once dry bones. Now they've come together. They're covered with ligaments and sinew and flesh. But there's no life in them. Do you know what God tells him to do next? He just said, prophesy to the bones. Preach to the bones. And Ezekiel does it. And something happens, but it's not enough. Now God says, prophesy to the ruach, the breath, the wind. 
to the Holy Spirit. And he, and he preaches to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes. And these men, he, he breathes life into them and raises them from the dead. And they stand as a great army. That's the greatest picture I've ever seen of preaching. Ezekiel, it's not your job to raise the dead. Preach the word of God dependent upon the spirit of God and you will see resurrection. Amen. You will see resurrection. And Paul knows the same thing. And so he, he doesn't say, I'm innocent because I rescued all of you. He just says, I'm innocent because I didn't withhold to any of you the word of God. I gave you everything, the whole counsel of God. He has a clear conscience. Now, write the word careful beside verse 28. Um, this is, I, I'm, I'm praying about whether to preach a sermon on just this uh, this exhortation to the elders of Ephesus. Uh, it would be necessary. It would be a good, um, a good thing for us to spend time on. We'll see. Pray for me. Okay, verse 28. The, the word, write the word care. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He tells the elders, these are the people who are in charge of shepherding the Ephesian church. Now we might expect him to say, pay careful attention to the flock. But what does he say first? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, there's tons here. Notice, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That in is blowing my mind. He doesn't say... Uh, to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Why does he say in to the elders? It, I think the reason is because the elders are not shepherds, they're sheep. Like, you're sheep too. Every, there is one shepherd and then there's sheep. And Jesus, because he's a good shepherd, he calls some of those sheep to rise up and be co-shepherds but it doesn't mean they're over the flock in an intrinsic way or in a, um, uh, what would that be called? I don't know. Intrinsic way. It's not like there's sheep and then there's men over them and then there's Jesus. There is Jesus the shepherd and then the rest of us are sheep. And it's his job and his prerogative to take some within the flock and say, I'm going to entrust you to the overseers. So those who... Um, those who tend to think that, that being an elder sets you apart as, a, um, as like a varsity sheep. Think again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Um, there's, there's more we're going to talk about in a moment. But the, the carefulness there that he, that he exhorts them to pay careful attention to yourselves first. And secondly, to all the flock. Why to themselves first? The reason is because um, elders are sinners who are caring for sinners, right? I mean, we have to guard, like my, uh, my biggest enemy, your biggest enemy is going to come not from outside, but from your own heart. And so he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Okay, so, so there is a... Um, there is an exhortation to be very careful with the things of God. You men who've been, uh, who've been entrusted with leadership, we are to be very careful for ourselves and for the whole flock. Now, 
right beside uh, the same verse, uh, you can write the word controversy if you want, because this is one of um, the most encouraging doctrines in your Bible, and it's also one that has um, literally drawn blood within the body of Christ. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God. So we are to take care of the church of God. Now, which he obtained with his own blood. There's two mega theological ideas in this text. Let me ask you something. What do you do with uh, the last phrase, his own blood? In this context, I say, whose own blood? Who's, whose own blood? Who are we talking about? In this text, we're talking about the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who is it? It's God. It's God. Now listen, does God have blood? Not until the incarnation. This is one of the clearest statements of the absolute divinity of Jesus Christ that exists in your Bible. This is the blood of God has bought this church. And, and we know that the blood belongs to Jesus. This is the divinity of Christ. But let me tell you something else that it is. It is definite atonement. It is definite atonement. Uh, this is a controversial topic for sure, a controversial idea. But it seems like I remember somewhere where I'm not supposed to shrink from declaring to you anything that's profitable. And since it's in the scripture here and it's in the scripture in other places, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what this means. This means that when Jesus died, he didn't just die for the potential that you would come to Christ. That he died to secure the fact we have to put this in a biblical context. Does God love the world? Yes, he loves the world. Um, there's, there's, um, there's a really helpful read called the, Diff the Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It looks at all the different aspects of the love of God. But typically where we get into error is we start to pretend like there's some aspect of the love of God that doesn't exist. So I'm affirming all of those things, but I'm going to affirm another aspect of the love of God that is consistently neglected in the preaching of the church, and that is that Jesus' Jesus's death definitely secured the salvation of the elect. Not just potential, but actuality, that it actually uh, attained, uh, achieved it. So think about this. What church, what church elders are he, is he speaking to? Do you remember? The, the, the Ephesian elders, right? Can you think of another text in, in the book of Ephesians? Ephesians uh, 5, 20 some odd? I don't, I don't do numbers. Listen to this. Fix this sentence. Uh, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love women as Christ loved the world and gave himself up for her. What did I change? The church. The church and wife. Right. Husbands, love your, not women in general, but your particular wife. You have one, and you need to love her. The way Christ not loved the world, although he does love the world, but he loves his bride in a different way, in an effectual way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his church and gave himself up 
for her in order that he would sanctify her, her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. I have a particular group of people that the Father has given to me and I'm dying for those people so that I will not lose a single one of them. This is called the doctrine of definite atonement. Listen, it's not something that you go threaten people with, like maybe you're elect, maybe you're not elect. I don't think the scripture um, speaks to people that way. If you're speaking to a stranger and you're preaching the gospel, you say, whosoever will may come, trust in Jesus, and you offer them a real opportunity to believe. But when somebody exercises faith in Jesus, you need to say, God knew that before the foundation of the world. And he just called you to accomplish the thing or to consummate the thing that he chose to do before the foundation of the world that he did in time when he sent his son Jesus to live and die and rise and that he did right now to consummate it by the sending of his Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the definite atonement that you were, God was not satisfied to just make your salvation a maybe. How does that grab you? He's not going to rest until he makes it an assurity. This is, this is the reason Christ came into the world was to buy for himself. He obtained with his own blood his church. Because the doctrine of definite atonement, you are welcome. Now, uh, write the word conviction beside verse 29. This is amazing. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. What, is he, what does he mean by from among your own selves? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the elders. Listen, here's the reality. The only perfect form of government is theocracy. Is Jesus on his throne ruling us? And that's where we will be one day. But until then, he has seen fit to call men in his church, in plurality, in every local body, to oversee and to govern the church. Knowing full well that like any other um, type of regime, there's danger there. And Paul says, look, I know that men are going to rise from among you. And they're going to speak twisted things. Uh, and they're going to draw away disciples after them, therefore, I love this. The therefore, how would how would an American uh, fix this up? You're going to have guys in leadership that are going to go rogue. Therefore, do away with leadership and let's just do democracy. Let's just make sure everybody everybody votes. It's not what he does, and that's not anywhere found in the New Testament. He says, therefore, be alert and remember that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, meaning. I kept on preaching because there's this constant temptation to drift from the standard of teaching that we are to uphold. And so we continue, we continue to preach and to admonish, passionately urging people to hold fast. So his conviction is that there's, when he departs, fierce wolves are going to come. Now, just as homework reading, I think, it's a, I think it's an amazing thing that he's talking again to the Ephesian church and that we see the Ephesian church later on in the New Testament, do we not? Not just in the book of Ephesians, but in a letter that Jesus writes to the Ephesian church. 
And one of the things, I'm just going to read it because y'all can't stop me. This is, um, uh, this is the book of Revelation, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, uh, and that's Second Peter. Hang on. Revelation chapter 2. The angel to the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my, my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. So these men who were told, fierce wolves are coming, be alert. They said, aye, aye, I think you salute with your right hand, but mine's holding a page in the Bible. Yes, we will do that. They stayed alert. They guarded the gates of doctrine. They, they intentionally drew swords. They tested false apostles. They, they, uh, they argued and they labored for truth. But what did he have against them? This is always the temptation to fall into one of two ditches that you get so lovey-dovey that you lose a backbone and you'll just swallow any kind of theology that comes down the pipe or... You get so rigid in your doctrine that you don't give a rip about the God you're preaching. You don't care about Him anymore. You just want to make sure that everybody's saying the right thing. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They were laboring to make sure that there was no doctrinal drift in, in their labor. It looks like they lost their love, uh, their love for Christ. And so, Paul's conviction, I know there are fierce wolves. And that's our task, right? Our task is to... Guard the gates of doctrine to, um, to be very careful with the things that, that are preached, with the things that are believed within the, the church of Christ, but at the same time to make sure that we don't leave off loving him, that, the, that our doctrinal rigidity um, does, not, uh, does not come at the cost of our affections for Jesus. So there's a conviction that fierce wolves will come. Right out, we're almost done. Right out uh, beside... Um, Beside uh, verse 32, the word com uh, commendation. Uh, now, we, we discovered in elder prayer this week that commendation has two senses to it, that I can, I can uh, commend somebody for doing a good work and say, hey, thank you. Robert tuned our, our uh, pi I almost said computer, our piano yesterday. Um, and if I, can, I can commend him publicly and say, man, thank you for, thank you for doing that. So it was a huge gift. Um, there's a second idea of commendation, and that's to give over and to entrust. To say, you know, uh, uh, Josiah, here's Casey, right? A commendation, like I'm entrusting something that's precious to me to your care. And so Paul, knowing that he's going to not see the Ephesian elders ever again in life, he says, and now... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. There's two trustworthy things that Paul gives his brothers to, that he commends them to, hands them over to. It's the person of God. That is one of the most radically encouraging things. All of us, right, that, that have kids, some of you guys... Uh, are further along and you have you have sent them off into the world. And I don't doubt that's a terrifying reality that like, man, this, I mean, think about Lydia, right? She's, Lydia doesn't even know that I exist in the world. 
because Gracie's got her and she doesn't ask for anything. She just cries and it's Gracie's job to know whether she's dirty, tired, hungry, grumpy, sick. It's her job. She watches over absolutely everything. It's Gracie's like um, 24-7 intense care for Lydia that's allowing her to live. I'm providing and I'm protecting. She doesn't even know I'm around. Um, as she grows up, that, that intense care lessens and lessens and lessens. And at some point, Eli's the closest one to it. At some point, we're going to commend them to the grace of God, to God himself, to his word, to his grace. And we're going to send them out into the world to, to go make damage. That's the idea. To go do damage to the enemy, build up the kingdom and the people of God. Um, it is a radically encouraging thing that we are not giving our children over, commending them to just a dead set of doctrines, but to the living God himself. I'm not worried about you. Why? Because I can give you to God who bought you anyway. The only reason I've, I've had any hand in this is because God loved you and sent me to you. And so as I'm going and never get to see you again, I'm entrusting you to God and to the word, to his word, his word, the word of his grace, which has power to do something. Look at this. It has the power to build you up and to give you the inheritance, the inheritance among those who are sanctified. You need God and you need his word and I'm, I'm leaving you to him. So he commends them. He gives them over to God. Now, uh, Two other things, coveting, write the word coveting beside verse 33. Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know, uh, know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. So Paul says, I, I, I wasn't coming trying to get your stuff, but I worked hard among you. I provided with the people who, uh, for the people who came with me. In all things, I have shown to you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Um, I love, Paul calls out, uh, speaking of um, profitable words, we live in a day and age that is, that is everything is based on coveting and envy. That all of the politics of our day is like, well, we have rich people, we have poor people, and uh, the poor people are envying. And so it's the government's job to take from the rich people and give it to the poor people. As though that, like that's a thing. Like we're going to now uh, plan and make politics based upon sin, by envy and covetousness. Paul says, I didn't do that. I came among you and I worked hard so that I would have things to give. And he tells the, Ephesian, um, he tells the Ephesians the same thing um, in, in Ephesians 4. He tells those who are former, formerly thieves, he says, go work hard so that you can earn a good living and have stuff to be generous with. And he gets to say that because he did the same thing. He worked hard among them. Um, lastly, write the word company uh, beside verse 36. This is fantastic. Uh, etymology of the word company. Com is Latin for with or together. And panis is Latin for bread. They're bread fellows. They're bread fellows. When he said th these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. Uh, by the way, Paul tells us in another text that he doesn't permit a woman to serve as an elder. 
So he's surrounded by Ephesian elders. What gender are these guys? They're men. And they knelt with him and they prayed with him and they wept with him. They embraced him. They kissed him. Um, Do with that what you want. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. It's a marvel to me again and again how uh, the love of Christ unites us together in such a way that it makes brothers and sisters out of otherwise what would be total strangers. You've got a Jew and a bunch of Gentiles and they love one another so much that when they hear that they're not going to see each other again, there's weeping, there's hugging, there's kissing, there's prayer because they have become one um, together. It's an amazing thing. All right, I'm done. Let me pray for us and we'll celebrate communion. Father, um, we thank you for, for these last words of Paul to the Ephesian elders. We thank you for the instruction that is ours because of it, because of the because of the value system that Paul had to love you above all things, faithfulness to you above all things. And then we get to see the, the fruit of that love and labor that he can say with a clean conscience that he didn't shrink back, that we can see his brothers and sisters who loved him. Um, we can see the evidence of your grace to unite people together. God, we thank you. We thank you for these things. Um, Lord, I, I, am, I am grateful Uh, especially for the word here. Um, The word of definiteness about the work of Christ, that you came into the world to to get your people. And uh, look at that, Lord. I'm I'm unbelievably humbled to, to even dare imagine that you would include me in that group of people, that you would include any one of us in that group of people. And so we just want to say thank you. Thank you for including us in the work of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said truthfully that Christianity is a life of repentance. That's because we are continually forgetting. We forget our own weaknesses. And we believe again and again that we have what it takes to do what is necessary. So long as we distance ourselves from the facts of the matter, this seems to work. For a time. And then God graciously allows us seasons of sin so that we can be reminded that we do not have what it takes and that only Christ does. And perhaps some of us are in that season today. If you're disappointed, let me ask, are you, are you disappointed in yourself today? Consider that it's probably because you're forgetting that you had looked away from yourself once, once for all, by repenting, and that you looked unto Christ once for all by believing. What is needed today is a continuation of that same repentance and that same faith. You are just as helpless today as you ever were. Anything that tells you to the contrary is an illusion. You are just, I am just as helpless today as I ever was. And, God be praised, Christ is just as sufficient and just as willing to save you today as he ever has been. So you come to this table turning away from your own abilities. Come to this table turning to Christ for everything you need. 
By doing so, you can come to this table more accepted than you can imagine and more loved than you can dare to hope. So come, welcome to Jesus Christ. We pray for you. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you give us faith in our remembering, in our eating, and in our drinking as we remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ, um, that body and that blood shed to purchase the church? Um, Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us so that we can know ourselves recipients of the promise that is Jesus? Um, we ask you to come now in his name. Amen. Amen.